Um, hello, everybody. Here I am with uh, Skylar. Skylar is someone that I specifically met through Bo Branson, who's been on my channel um, two times already. Sky well, I guess maybe I kind of met you in Dale Tuggy's Facebook group in the comments section sometimes, um, but I kind of more formally met you through Bo Branson. Um, and uh, we, we're in a weekly book study of Irenaeus together. Um, so I've been enjoying that. And uh, so Skylar has a, an interesting story. He, you, you grew up oneness Pentecostal and sort of have meandered your way onto the path to becoming Orthodox. Um, and along the way, you've spent a lot of time learning about, reading about and understanding sort of Christology, the church fathers and the history of theology and stuff like that, which sort of naturally means that we could talk about stuff for hours. Um, but, uh, but I'm curious to hear more about sort of your story and your journey, because uh, I think there's, there's a decent amount of my audience that is sort of like you, that has some sort of Protestant background and is now either Eastern Orthodox or very curious about Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, and so I, I think that a lot of people will resonate with your story. Yeah, I'm glad to be here with you, Sam, and, and talk about it. And it's been a lot of fun going through Irenaeus with you and, you know, talking about the church fathers and, and all kinds of stuff. Um, when I was about five, was when my grandparents converted to oneness Pentecostalism. And my grandpa's father was a lifelong minister actually in the Assemblies of God, which is Trinitarian. Uh, Trinitarian Pentecostal. Um, correct. Yeah. They're, mm -hmm. they're a Trinitarian form of Pentecostalism. Yeah. And I mean, right around that time, Honestly, when I was that young, that was the first time I had I had learned the terms brainwashing and cult because my mom, who grew up actually Mormon, um, there's a lot of family members I have on my mother's side of the family from Southeast Idaho that are Mormon. And she, with a number of circumstances, really didn't want anything to do with religion later on in her life. She had me when she was 16 and my, my younger brother when she was 18. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, she, she found out what had happened to my grandparents and they wanted to bring us to church and stuff like that. And she wanted us to have nothing to do with it. And there was a story, you know, that, that my grandma tells that around this time, she, she prayed to God that, you know, he would, have mercy on us and allow me and my brother to come to church with them. And um, my mom eventually changed her, her mind. And we started, you know, we lived about it an hour away at the time, I think, or shortly thereafter lived about an hour away down there in, in Southern and Southeast Idaho from each other. And we started going to the Sunday schools and the normal services and during the summers would go to the youth camps and, and things like that. And it was the only form of Christianity that I really knew that I really understood or had experienced or, or anything. And, um, and, and it was through my grandparents influence 
they, my, my grandfather became an ordained minister and, you know, he was active in, in that church in, in Southeast Idaho for a long time. And I mean, that was basically sort of my, my, my first exposure to any kind of Christianity whatsoever. And we started, you know, doing memory verses and, and all of that sort of stuff and memorizing the books of the Bible and quizzing and, and things like that. And that's what, that's what happened to me really early on. Um, when I was about nine, moved out here to the Seattle area with, with my dad, my, my parents were never married or never together. So I, I moved out here to live with him. And so I would just go to Idaho during the summers and go to the summer camps and that sort of thing. And when I was about 11 years old is when I, I was filled with the Holy spirit and I, I spoke in tongues, which was a, it's a very big deal in any form of Pentecostalism, but an especially important form in, in oneness. So mm-hmm. you we might can not know definitely that talk I, more. You might not know that the church that I grew up in was also charismatic. And that um, I, I was also taught how to speak in tongues around age 14 or 15, I think. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, just to distinguish my experience a little bit from that, I, I wasn't taught, I wasn't taken into a room or anything. I remember, you know, just being at an altar and being with a, a man who was a good friend of my grandparents sort of praying with me. And, you know, I... I confessed that Jesus Christ was, was God and that I had sinned against him. And then this experience happened to me. So I, I wasn't taught or, or coerced or anything like that. Um, wow. And that, that's that was when I was 11. Yeah. Uh-huh. And you, you'd seen other stories or happenstances like that before, I assume, but it happened to you pretty spontaneously. Yeah. 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 I mean, um, I've seen uh, in in my grandparents' church this sort of thing happening. I had seen the, uh, seen it in the in the camp meetings that we would do with uh, kids and and teens and 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 people of all ages really being filled with the Holy Spirit or or being refilled or or what have you. Um, I mean, and after that happened to me when I was. 11 to um, I was baptized in Jesus name in single immersion. So both of those factors, I think, and, and my story kind of brings out the uniqueness of what is oneness Pentecostalism, because both of those factors, at least in the United Pentecostal church international, which I'm most familiar with and which is the largest oneness um, organization in the world, both of those components and, and both of those aspects, or sometimes you, you might just call them experiences, are necessary conditions for salvation. Both speaking in tongues, which is the initial evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit, and being baptized in Jesus' name. And single versus triple immersion, I knew nothing about until I started reading the Church Fathers much, much later. But um, both of those components for them are, are necessary for, for salvation. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the salvation experience, the salvation 
process. There's a number of ways that, that they describe it, different terminology. Interesting. And so it's, it's one dunk in the name of Jesus, not one dunk in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit or anything like that? That's right. It's in the name of Jesus only. Um, mm-hmm. I had some stuff here. I mean, if, if you're interested, just because it, it, this whole, those two aspects and their soteriology is really what I think drove the movement towards being oneness. And oneness there refers to its theology proper specifically, its view of God, which although most of the time they don't like or don't prefer and sometimes even repudiate the term modalism or sometimes will will choose to say modalistic monarchianism the the view of salvation is really what gave rise to this whole debate and what ended up kind of coming at a head you know in in the early 1900s with the assemblies of god and these oneness men mm-hmm. so so yeah um, if if you could go into the history of that i I've heard a little bit about it before, but it's somehow connected with the Azusa Street Revival and sort of a, a parting of the ways pretty early on. But, but yeah, I, I mean, much more beyond that. We do have the Azusa Street Revivals and that sort of thing, but, but really where a lot of people who have written on this, both from a oneness side in particular, and I think this book's a little bit hard to get now, but Talmadge French's book, Our God is One, is, is a book from a oneness perspective on this sort of history. He was a Trinitarian at some point, and I think for most of his life, if I recall, and he became a oneness Pentecostal. Um, but also works like uh, David Reed, who is a Trinitarian, has written on this sort of thing too. And where people sort of see this sort of thing beginning is in 1913 at the Arroyo Seco camp meeting and mind you, if, if I'm recalling all of the details right now, I mean, all of these people are Trinitarians at this point, but there's a, a sermon preached by um, R.E. McAllister where he had done this sort of study of the New Testament and found that the practice of the early church was baptism in Jesus' name and single immersion. And in that same year, through people who became very important in the oneness movement, like Frank Ewart, began to rebaptize um, each other and then started rebaptizing other people who, who came over to their view. And this, I mean, it really started to become a big movement to where by the time three years later in 1916, the Assemblies of God. drafts a statement in their meetings and that sort of thing that in Talmadge French's view, remember the, the oneness Pentecostal says was an, was an anti oneness statement. Basically this had become a big deal. And in fact, they had called it the new issue back then. And uh, I mean, and, and it all had its beginnings really with, with this idea of baptizing in immersion a single time in Jesus name to where people went off from there to start talking about their view of God and how the Trinity and that sort of thing as well. 
so that's sort of a separate issue. We can get into sort of the oneness view on things, but where it comes out of really their soteriology. Interesting. Yeah. So they they start baptizing just in the name of Jesus because they think that's probably what the Bible taught and the early church was practicing. And and actually, if you go through and ask the question of the New Testament, how exactly are you supposed to baptize and in what name or names, it is a little bit confusing and uh, contradictory. Um, uh, and so, so I can see that. So then, so then this practice sort of then begs the question of what is the theology behind it, right? It's sort of like practice and soteriology first, and then Christological ramifications second? Uh, I think that's, that's right. I mean, they, they see a way to reconcile the baptismal formula. And I mean, mm -hmm. that's kind of the, the term that they use, the formula of Matthew 28, 19, with what's happening in the book of Acts. And I mean, the, the key verse, I mean, if, if you go to just about any oneness Pentecostal church or service or what have you, you're going to hear Acts 238. Mm -hmm. And this is going to be, is the, the rock bottom of, of their, of their theology of God and of salvation. So. Sure. Sure. And so could you explain a little bit about what exactly oneness theology is and, and what they believe? Yeah. So what I'll give first is sort of the, the standard oneness view. Um, I call it a standard oneness view and other ways to be oneness. But they... They begin, I think, most of the time with the claim that Jesus is the Father incarnate. Mm -hmm. So there is only one God. There is only one divine subject who is God, and that is the Father. And the Father is the one who became incarnate. It wasn't a second person of, of the Trinity. It wasn't, uh, you know anybody else. It, it was God himself, the single subject. And as I've talked about this, and, and when I try to speak about oneness, I do say subject instead of person. And part of the reason for that is they actually don't like, and they sort of repudiate in some cases, the term person, because they think that that refers only, basically it has the connotation of being human like you and I are with all of our limitations. So what they wouldn't say, at least typically, like in David K. Bernard's view, and David Bernard is currently the general superintendent of the UPCI, and the foremost, in my view, and most important defender and writer in Oneness Pentecostalism, he would not want to say that the father is a person because of that sort of connotation of limitation of humanity and that sort of thing. But he's okay with saying that Jesus Christ is a person. He has the, uh, a human nature, 
So in, in a way that that term will apply to him in that respect. So I try to stay away from that. And I just say divine subject or the only subject that that is God is the father. So that's kind of how I'll, I'll speak so I can be sensitive to the ways that they want to want to speak. Basically, I think a way to think about that, that claim that Jesus is, is really two claims. They'll say that the father alone is truly divine and that Jesus is truly divine. So what that entails is that the divine subject who is the father is Jesus Christ or becomes mm-hmm. incarnate as Jesus Christ. There are days, and I've, I've tried to parse this out a little bit in my own writing, but they do speak a little bit contra- in contradictory or maybe even just contrary ways incarnate in Jesus. And there are times they will say incarnate as Jesus. Mm-hmm. And depending how you want to take those terms, I think that has led to some misunderstanding that I've seen in some debates with them of thinking that Jesus Christ just refers to a human shell um, or just a human body or something like that. I don't think that's what they typically mean to say, but sometimes people have gotten that impression from them. But really what I would say and what David Bernard himself said the oneness view of the incarnation at least with how it it works i guess you could say you have one divine subject with with two natures you know human and divine for the most part you can buy a chalcedonian christology and they will accept that they and they will deny nestorianism they'll deny eutychianism you know the mixture of the two natures Um, they'll deny Apollinarianism. So like the father becomes the soul of this human body or something like that. So So they will accept Chalcedonian Christology. So the incarnation is the same. It's just that it's different. Who is the incarnation of? That's right. Right. At least typically. Yeah. mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so that, that makes some sense. And then what is, what is the Holy Spirit in, in oneness views? They also speak, <laughs> yeah, they also speak in some contrary ways there, to be quite honest. Um, typically, however, they will say that the Holy Spirit can just be the Father himself. And one way that they'll typically show that or prove that is with Luke one thirty-five. So the Spirit overshadows Mary, and then they'll say, well, the Father is whoever caused the conception, and that was the Holy Spirit, so... That must be the father. There are other times, though, and even in the same author, you'll also find this even in, you know, David Bernard's writings, where he'll also speak of the Holy Spirit as God in spiritual action. So it's sort of like a, I mean, to use philosophical lingo a little bit, the Holy Spirit names like a state of affairs where the father or God doing something. Mm-hmm. Okay. So on the one hand, they'll say the father, say it's just the father and spiritual action don't necessarily seem to take just one view or the other. And they seem to be totally okay with speaking in, in both ways. Um, although interestingly with 
kind of their soteriology and build, being filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't think that I've really heard that like you're filled with the Father or you're filled with Jesus or anything like that. I mean, even though that's that's consonant with the view, they typically won't say that. So right. there's some sort of they yeah they want to hold on to the ways that Scripture speaks of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but. Um, it, at times, I think that can cause a little bit of tension with their view. One thing I, I should mention, too, though, with this Jesus is the Father incarnate, like just sort of think of that as the oneness slogan for the incarnation and kind of what embodies their their view of, of God and Jesus. They deny by that very statement what is classically and sometimes explained as Sabellianism, namely the view that God is father. And then like, he stops doing that. And then he becomes the son for a certain amount of time and then stops doing that and becomes the Holy spirit. In fact, they think that all of God's ways of manifesting himself or it, sometimes they'll say modes, but most of the time they'll, they'll say manifestations. Those can actually all occur at once, which oh. is how, you know, they'll bring in, a way to help them explain, you know, Jesus baptism and, and that sort of thing. So speaking with oneness people, you want to avoid attributing to them the view that the father stops being the father at some point to become the son. Like these are overlapping manifestations such, you know, and, and that's supposed to help them explain how Jesus can pray to the father and, and things like mm -hmm. that too. Um, do so in when you're when you're in a oneness church and growing up oneness is is that distinctive part of the theology emphasized a lot like we're different than those trinitarians because we're xyz that is a very good question and the answer is absolutely yes uh -huh. <laughs> um i i sort of have to share a little bit of an anecdote um, that I, I think was a little bit formative for me in wanting to understand what other Christians said about things. And I don't know all of the context, but I mean, this is a Pentecostal church. If people aren't familiar with this sort of thing, I mean, there can be a lot of standing and clapping and even running around the church and things, you know, when the preacher is saying something that's true and that's good and that praises God, it can be very exciting services. And I mean, going to these camp meetings and, and that sort of thing, I, although I sort of only live God during these, these camp meetings and these times of summers with my grandparents, I could be pretty zealous about the view and I, I felt back then I did love God a lot. So I, I engaged in, in all of those things and the running and the clapping and that sort of thing. And there was one preacher in particular who was emphasizing the uniqueness of the oneness message. And I don't know the full context of it. And maybe it's what he actually said in um probably this bad, but in order to get to the campground where we would go for these camp meetings, you would pass by just an, a Christian church. And if I remember, it was Lutheran or something like that. And he was preaching about the uniqueness of the oneness view. And 
And somehow it came up that all Trinitarians were going to hell. And I don't know if he said something like, you ought to be thankful to God because you have the truth of the one God message because all Trinitarians are going to hell or something like that. But I remember a lot of people standing and clapping subsequent to that. And it was one of the few times that I didn't do that. And it made me really wonder, what is it that these people view and why are we getting so excited how false their view is. Um, and just about any time Acts 2.38 comes up um, and that sort of thing, it is absolutely emphasized that it is in distinction to Trinitarianism. You can hardly talk about the oneness view just as the oneness view in my experience without also having to mention the Trinity or without mentioning how others, you know, believe in three gods and that sort of thing. Interesting. So, I mean, that very question and that very ethos and, and that very emphasis itself in their churches, I think was one of the catalysts that got me wondering and wanting to think about if I'm going to reject those views, I want to be able to understand them because I don't see what's so exciting about somebody being lost. Mm -hmm. Sure. That's interesting. That, Cause in my church growing up, like we would certainly spend more time than average talking about why the Trinity was not true, but we didn't, I wouldn't say we like overly dwelt on it. And like maybe as far as we would go would be to say that like the Trinity was deceptive or erroneous or dangerous but i don't think we would ever say that if you believed in the trinity that definitely meant that you weren't a christian or weren't saved we kind of maybe hoped that they still kind of were despite the trinity but but we we weren't glad or sure certain that that all trinitarians weren't christian if that makes sense yeah, and I mean, I should say, even though that was one experience that is sort of burned in my memory, I don't think a lot of people probably take that sort of view yeah. If, yeah. if they're pressed or if you ask them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I do remember that being a part of at least that, that particular occasion. So I don't want to say that that's that sort of thing about Trinitarians saved is sort of harped on or emphasized or anything like that. I mean, the oneness versus Trinity thing, that's totally emphasized and you can yeah. hardly not, not hear that if, if you don't, you know, if you hear about Acts 238 or something in a sermon, but mm -hmm. I, I don't want to give the impression that, that everybody thinks that. Okay. Yeah, sure. That's, that's fair. And so the, the emphasis, the reason why the Trinity is to be avoided from a oneness perspective is because it's polytheistic or it doesn't, do they think it's diminishing of Jesus in any sort of way? What, why do they think that the Trinity is, is so wrong or dangerous? I think really what, what they think it amounts to is tritheism. 
I mean, that's really the, the only sort of like worry or problem or, or anything. I mean, from, from the very top levels, you know, David Bernard's books to just talking to people who, you know, were Trinitarians who became oneness and just my experience in the churches, that was the issue for them. They became oneness because they felt like they were worshiping three gods and they found, you know, the truth or they had the revelation that the one God is Jesus alone. Mm -hmm. So interesting. I think it's just the tritheism worry at bottom. There, there's not a whole, whole lot else, at least that, that I'm aware of or have heard in experience. Yeah. Interesting. So um, do they, do oneness Pentecostals ever talk about church fathers or heretical church fathers that they would have agreed with? You said they don't like the comparison to Sibelius. Do they have their heroes in church history or do they just not really talk about church history very much? In the pew and in sermons and that sort of thing, you could just to be honest, you could go your whole life and have no idea that anybody wrote anything important, you know, probably prior to the Reformation and then subsequently oneness. Yeah. However, I will say that, that David Bernard, again, one of the so important, I think, in the movement, and in fact, many of his books are required reading if you become a minister in the United Pentecostal Church International. He's written a number of books on church history. And it's, it's been a long time since I have gone through those books, but often what's done is they will discuss views that are very similar to theirs to show that there are precedents at least. So I, I know that there's one part in one of Bernard's books where he talks about oneness believers in church history. And by oneness, he actually just means like their view of theology proper. So, from what I remember, he'll discuss people like Michael Servetus. He'll talk about Sibelius and Noetus and Praxius and people like that. In, um, in, a, in a recent paper and in a presentation that Bernard has also given, he will say, though, that even with these oneness um, men and believers in history, we don't know what their soteriology was. So I don't think that typically they're going to point to anyone in history and say they had a full-blown like oneness view of God and of salvation, mm-hmm. but they will point to similarities like um, belief in tongues and miracles and that uh, baptism is necessary for salvation and various you know, modalistic monarchian types in, in church history. So Bernard, I think, has has done a lot of work there, and uh, David Norris in one of his books is, discusses the the church fathers a little bit. And typically, what they take aim at really is is their their argument is like that's just not the full blown Trinity view, you know. You know, they they use arguments you might be familiar with, like you don't get that in Justin Martyr, and you don't get that in in Irenaeus and maybe you get something somewhat similar in Tertullian, but you don't get the Trinity until at maybe Nicaea and afterwards. So, Mm -hmm. and it, and normally the dialectic is if we want to discuss these church fathers, it seems like 
their view maps more closely to a oneness view than it does a Trinitarian view. And that's sort of how they, they run the dialectic if and when the church fathers do come up. Mm -hmm. But they don't necessarily have a single group or church father or anyone that sort of has the whole bundle, obviously. They, were, they would say the New Testament does. After that, it, it perhaps it went, all went to crap pretty quickly and you can find shards of it here and there. Right? And honestly, that would be something that I would kind of recognize. Yeah, that's that's basically it. I I think that's right. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So and, and well, how big is Oneness Pentecostalism? It's it's always way bigger than I think it is. Yeah. So this came up actually in Talmadge French's book from a few years ago, the one I've mentioned, "Our God Is One," and also more recently, David Bernard has cited that book and provided I think some other figures. The estimates. And I don't, I don't know how they're running the definitions and getting these numbers, but really it's de depending on how you define oneness or however they're, they're doing this, it seems to be anywhere from 15 to 30 million oneness believers in the world. That's pretty crazy considering it's just over 100 years old. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That, that really is pretty remarkable. And are there a lot of um, sort of overseas... Uh, mission fields that are very successful for them, like Nigeria or something like that? Yeah, so I know that they do have global missions. They do have an active global missions department. In fact, somebody in our, our family, uh, he and his wife are missionaries to Spain currently. Um, uh, yeah, some really big oneness areas in South America, and I believe particularly in Brazil, mm -hmm. and also in Ethiopia. So those, I know that those are, I mean, if you're not active, you know, in, in oneness or whatever, even just being around, you'll hear stories of various preachers and, and different sort of revivals that happen in, in, in Ethiopia in particular is one really big one. Um, the Philippines as well. I, I've probably heard when this sort of thing comes up and we're talking about revival overseas and, and that sort of thing, I've probably heard more stories about the Philippines and Ethiopia than anywhere else. Mm -hmm. They do have missionaries of the world though. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's interesting. So, um, so I guess that brings us back to you. So that's, that's a pretty good overview of what oneness theology is and sort of where it came from and where it's at now. Um, but when, when, so you're not oneness now. So, so when did you start to question it or, or leave it or, or what's the next step in that story? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of steps to be honest. Um, like I said, when I was 11, I was filled with the Holy Spirit, and I sort of only lived for God on and off during summer camps and that sort of thing. And in my mid-teens, around the time that met my father and, and my stepmother got married, it was the summer that they got married, I sort of decided when I, I went to one of these summer trips that I was either going to really live for God or I was just going to forget about the whole thing. I don't really remember or I didn't write down sort of why, I mean, 
here I am. So <laughs> I chose to, to live for God. Um, but I think at bottom, the expenses that I had played an important role in that. And once I made that decision and I, I came home and, and that sort of thing, my grandparents had, had met a minister and his wife who had a, a small church. They call them uh, home missions churches. So they, they lived actually not far from, from us and, and they would come and pick me up and go to church. And I mean, that, that happened for a while until I was able to start driving myself. And because I really started making the faith my own, I don't remember really how it, it came up, but I, I, remember, I, I remember this really vividly talking to my, my dad and my stepmom who, uh, I mean, my, my dad has had a lot of experiences in, in religion and in particularly many bad ones, but I would say that, that um, they're non-religious, but they're spiritual people, um, I think is how they would largely describe themselves now. But, but we had this conversation where I remember I was leaving to go somewhere and, and we had this conversation of how do you know your beliefs are true and like, all sorts of other spiritual beliefs aren't correct. And I don't really remember having much of an answer back then other than I've had these sorts of religious experiences and this seems right to me. And of course, I mean, and, and rightly, I think they, they weren't satisfied with that sort of thing. And I felt pretty dissatisfied about it. And I discovered William Lane Craig. <laughs> I, <laughs> I discovered his debates with atheists and arguments for God's existence. And I absolutely devoured his work. And I would, um, for a, a, a number of years in my life, would have probably said I pretty much buy and accept everything that, that is amenable to my oneness views uh, that, that he held, you know, the Molinism and, uh, and stuff like that, you know, um, believing that, God is temporal, temporal after creation, but he's timeless before creation. A lot of the sort of work that he's done. And he was really formative for me. And I remember for the first time hearing his, his uh, defenders lectures on the Trinity. And, you know, he defends it from scripture first. And then he sort of starts to try to give this model of how it can be coherent. And some people who, who probably watch your channel have, have heard of his like Kerberos analogy and that sort of thing that gets him going on, on the Trinity. And his view is that the one God, the Trinity, is basically this, tri, um, this tri-personal soul. You've got this soul or something like a soul that has three sets of rational faculties that all count as uh, persons. Mm -hmm. And, and really it's like a, he emphasizes, he wants this to be like, I really want to hold on to the relationship between the father and son. So, um, they're like these, these three centers of consciousness that can relate to one another. Now, all that to say that back then, when I had been hearing that all Trinitarians just believe in three gods or, or whatever, from my understanding at the time, that just didn't seem like tritheism to me it seemed like at least one maybe possible or viable interpretation of things. And, and really almost I, not even that far from oneness in a certain sense. 
Yeah, I mean, that's sort of an interesting point. I, <laughs> I have some real issues with his, his view nowadays, so that's why I say my understanding at the time. But I think with, with his work and even with his kind of Kerberos analogy or his Trinity monotheism view, I just sort of realized that maybe there are views about the Trinity that aren't obviously tritheism. And I'm, I'm oneness. I, I believe in that. And I do believe that like the Trinity was a mistake and these sorts of things back then. But I, I remember as I started to get into philosophy again at, at William Lane Craig's sort of influence, um, I started to dig into a, a lot more of that in college. And really, that's kind of the second step is without William Lane Craig and that sort of model that he's given and his his love for philosophy and 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 defending the truth in those ways. I started reading about different you know models of the Trinity, and I got into analytic theology and philosophy in college. and i I was actually a a history and philosophy double major. And I, I don't even really remember how it happened, but somewhere a year or two down the line, I ran into Dr. T Dale Tuggy's Trinity's blog. And what I really appreciated and I really admired like about the way that, that he was discussing, you know, he's trying to distinguish these different types of modalism and like, what does a mode mean? And, and uh, he has a series of really great blog posts on that. And then I, I read a blog post of his where he argues, he, he gives a reductio ad absurdum argument against any of modalism about the sun. And of course, oneness counts as one of those views. Now, with my respect and my, um, my attempt to follow arguments where they led and that sort of thing, at the time, I had no idea how to get out of his argument. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's like this short blog post. I mean, and there's not really much that had to be said there, but I remember I, I had like what, one what's of the, the basic of what's the basics of his argument. Well, he, because it's a reductio ad absurdum argument, he, he begins with the premise that suppose that the sun is one of God's modes or something like that. I, I don't remember exactly how it's stated off the top of my head. Or it, actually, it begins, suppose that modalism about the sun is true. And then what happens after that is he says, well, either that means the sun just is or is numerically identical to God, or he's one of God's modes. And he runs into issues with both of those. If he's numerically identical to God, then there can't be a loving interpersonal relationship between the father and the son. So that's one horn of the, of the dilemma. And then the other horn has to do um, uh, with, I, I don't even remember exactly how he states it. I wish I would have written it all down. But <laughs> if the fine. son is just one of God's modes or something like that, um, I think the example he gives is like, you can't be friends with your easygoingness. Like you can't be friends with like that mode of yours or something like that. So you run into the, to the same sort of issue. Like no matter what you, you run into some issues with the new Testament 
with uh, with Christ not being able to really relate to the Father one way or the other, and with the fact that that the Father and, and the Son um, have different truths about one or the other. Um, you know, Christ died, but the Father didn't, and that sort of thing. And I mean that that just leads to the problem that if you want to suppose that modalism about the Son is true, then then they can't differ and um, the son can't have a relationship with the father. And I, I continued to be oneness and to like go to my oneness church. And I don't know if this is an exaggeration, but I think it's pretty accurate that I basically became instantly agnostic about my oneness view after I read that blog post. Mm-hmm. I, I had one of the, like the original Kindles at the time. So I like downloaded the blog post and converted it to a word file and I put it on my Kindle and I would like flip it open and like try to think about it. I still can't get out of it. I, I don't know what to do, you know? So it just, once I recognized sort of his arguments for why the father and the son or, or the father and uh, uh, Jesus had to be numerically distinct persons or subjects or what have you. I think that sort of launched me into looking into different views of the Trinity to see how they would make sense of it. So those are kind of two big things, the William Lane Craig thing, you know, the, the tritheism quip that I had been hearing for so long basically fell flat. And then basically I, while I stayed oneness, I, I was basically agnostic about it because I just felt like, here's a good argument and I haven't looked at enough to really be able to answer it from scripture or, or from the philosophical way of reasoning about it. So. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I guess I've, I've never quite had, I mean, I, I have to say it takes a lot of philosophical curiosity and honesty to actually have an argument be able to affect you like that. Most people, I think, can, no matter what they, I mean, this isn't just about oneness, it's about per, per, virtually anything. Most people have a way of just cognitive biasing away something that really should be an honest argument. So it's a rare sort of person that would take that sort of thing as seriously as you did. Yeah. Well, I think part of that, honestly, was just I mean, these were non-polemic posts that Dr. Tuggy wrote, and it was in a style that I was becoming familiar with in analytic theology and and philosophy. And it avoided a lot of like the, you know, the baggage and the ways that I was used to, you know, people responding to, to oneness. I mean, I learned later on that he was a biblical Unitarian. But even so, you know, he he took the view very seriously in a way that like nobody else had really done. Mm -hmm. And I think that had that affected me um, Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. That says something itself about useful apologetic techniques. But but yeah. Yeah. So so you so you're in college, you're you're a history and philosophy major. Um, Dale Tuggy drops a bombshell on oneness and so so then where where do you go from there yeah i mean um my wife and i got married when i was 21 
on the Friday of finals week. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, one of my groomsmen, he was, he was going to, uh, I went to the university of Washington in Seattle and I think he was going to, uh, uh, the UW campus in Bothell or Cascadia community college, which, which shares with UW Bothell. I can't remember which at the time, but he finished his last final and then came basically to everything we were doing for the wedding. <laughs> so just free advice. I mean, do not get married on the Friday of finals weekend. And that was, that was crazy. It snowed yeah, no. at 6 a.m. And it was like sunny and 65 by like 6 p.m. So was it winter's finals? I, day. I assume it wasn't like May. It was December. <laughs> no. Th so this was, uh, uh, this was, um, how, how did they name them? Quarters. I think they did winter court. Yeah. It's quarters up here. Okay. So, we had winter, then spring, then summer quarter, and then like actual summer was mm. called or whatever. But this was in March, so <laughs> crazy. It's the end of March and it snows and it gets sunny in like sixty, sixty-five in the same day. It was absolutely nuts. So, <laughs> um, but I mean, in my my wife and I, we um, I mean, we found out we were going to have our our daughter when we. I mean, we would have, uh, she was born in a December. So we, we had only been married for like a year and a half at that point. And there wasn't a whole lot of, um, maybe theological development or, or searching or, and I think I basically remained agnostic for a long time. And I tried to get into graduate school for two years in a row, actually for philosophy and uh took the GRE and stuff like that and and I wasn't able to get in and uh so I I just tried to get a better job I mean I I didn't have jobs that were paying a whole lot and I think collectively my wife and I were not making very much money I eventually ended up working in the ho hotel industry where I did fairly well and um but that industry, I think, had some really marked and negative effects on me. And um, I, I worked the front desk at hotels for a number of years, so maybe you can understand why that might have a, a negative effect on, on somebody and sort of their personality. But, I mean, at this time, I'm having my first kid. I'm not making very much money. You know, my career doesn't seem to be going anywhere and I can't get these for and that sort of thing. And um, I don't think a whole lot really happened back then. I tried to read commentaries. I remember seeing copious notes on D.A. Carson's commentary on Matthew, like during that time. And I, I think I've read like most of Augustine's City of God. So I, I tried to like keep up reading and doing stuff like that. And I, I would read my Bible and I was still active in my oneness church. Um, I played music and uh, sometimes they would have me teach and preach. And I was a youth leader for a little while. Um, none of that really a big deal. I mean, I'm talking like 15 to 25 person church. So um, when you have somebody willing to do all of that, you kind of just get plugged yeah. in. You know, <laughs> maybe some of you guys out there can relate to that sort of thing. But um, then I ended up getting a job that I, I still have now. Um, and, and this job 
was with one of my best friends. And I mean, it was a salary job. It was Monday through Friday and there were opportunities there. And I, uh, that we moved into like all of these things started happening and the summer prior to that I talked to somebody at one of the oneness you know um, summer conferences so in Washington there's all these different districts because it's a lot bigger so you kind of have to like not everybody from eastern Washington is going to come over here to the Seattle area for stuff so we would have like district conferences where all the different churches would get together and do revivals and and stuff like that so uh, there's one minister out here who who uh, is well respected and who is a teacher at one of the oneness seminaries now and who I kept in contact with for a long time and he uh, he really showed belief in me and he appreciated a lot of the questions that I had and apologetics and that sort of thing and sort of at his encouragement and the fact that I had this more stable job I started thinking about like what do I want to do now for a while I actually thought like with all this free time I was going to do like and uh I didn't do that although I do love music um mm -hmm. but I, I decided to go to seminary so I I enrolled at Regent University and Regent University is out out in Virginia not Regent College um in Vancouver, Canada, which is nearby here. They, those two often get confused, but Regent University out in, in Virginia is like a Pentecostal or restorationist type, type school. And, um, it was at, at this, um, um, man's recommendation that I, that I go there. So I entered there, um, agnostic really i i wanted to learn what i needed to learn to either show that the view was right or that it wasn't and why um so i i majored in biblical studies to learn greek and hebrew and um i continued to to study in in analytic theology and philosophy and that sort of thing i went to some conferences and i gave a couple of papers and i just i sort of did everything i could in going into that thinking that ultimately if it ever worked out for me and it was God's plan that I would go on and get a PhD. So that was really the next, next big step for me was, uh, starting out at Regent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and, and so what was, so what was your time like there? Um, how do you feel like that went? Um, and I, I can really relate to what it feels like to be, existentially driven by Christology Not, that doesn't happen yeah. to most people, but, but I get it. You don't need to explain yeah. that to me. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm glad that you can, you can sympathize. I mean, it's kind of a weird thing where, um, yeah, I mean the way that, that I did my program was completely online mm -hmm. that has its so ups and downs. So you stayed living in Washington while you were, Doing it yep. online. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I kept my job, um, worked with my my current job um, and everything through this this whole time, and it took me three straight years. So I I did January through December. I I did, I took classes during summer semesters and and that sort of thing, and 
the reason that I did that, to be honest, was I was going to try and apply for, for PhD programs, like right when I was done and I didn't want to take the GRE again. And I found out mm-hmm. like, if I do it this quickly, I can use my GRE <laughs> scores again. <laughs> sure. Uh, Cause I mean, it, it's an expensive and it's sort of a grueling test. Like, do I want to yeah. study all of the, the tricky little math questions they do again? Yeah. But uh, I think overall, it, it was a good experience. There are some classes that I could complain about a lot. But um, I think, I mean, that's sort of a, a different topic. I, if if I were quite honest about it, I meant a fully online program um, for people who are going on or at least thinking they want to do a PhD program. I could see it being very beneficial for somebody. And there was a lot of these people at Regent who were preparing to be like army chaplains and, and stuff like that. Or, you know, they, they wanted to get an education so that they could take up a pastorate or, or something to that effect. I think that sort of model being fully online and that sort of thing with Regent could very well prepare, prepare people well for that sort of thing. And my particular headspace and and my experience, I felt like I had to go out of my way to do even more um, if I was going to qualify for a PhD program. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, online education has its ups and downs, and I certainly think it has some really great benefits. I didn't have to relocate. Um, It definitely has its downsides too, though. Mm Mm-hmm. So so when so when did you start getting interested in Eastern Orthodoxy? I guess. Um, that that sort of jumps forward a little bit for me. I think. Um, well, if there's any gaps in there, feel free to fill them. Yeah. <laughs> well, I sort of have to bring it up only because it's it's important for my journey, to be honest. Um, but I. I wrote a paper for Theologica that was published um, and it was called um, one is Pentecostalism, the two minds view and the problem of Jesus prayers. So I basically wrote on oneness and writing on a possible oneness way that somebody can avoid the argument that if Jesus prays to the father, that just implies that they have to be numerically distinct subjects or persons. Because that's a pretty, I mean, that's where a lot of people will go. And, I mean, all I did was I built on Thomas Morris's book, The Logic of God Incarnate, where at the end of the book, he just gives this outright, says, somebody who's modalistic could use my view, and they could have a fully modalistic conception of deity and avoid that problem. And I was like, that's really interesting. I feel like somebody should develop that. And that's what I tried to do in that paper. Now, the whole process that I'm writing this paper, I'm still active in my my church and playing music and this sort of thing. It ends up being published and it it basically sort of becomes, in the way that you sort of put it, it becomes more existential for me. Like... I'm I'm in this church and now I think that there are 
these reasons to think that that oneness Pentecostals need to give up some of their standard proof texts for for their view and that sort of thing. And eventually it came to a head where, you know, my wife and I discussed it and we just realized that we no longer held those same views and we felt like we were being dishonest for being involved in different outreaches and um, being involved in music ministry and stuff like that down and you know just stay in the pews or or what have you it was basically immediately after that my my friend corby amos turned me towards bo branson's presentations on the monarchy that again sort of opened my world to the church fathers that opened my world to um a different way of of speaking and thinking about the trinity and i read his dissertation i mean basically immediately after that and i began emailing dr branson about the things that he had talked about you know i'm bugging him on academia edu <laughs> sending him messages and he would kindly respond <laughs> and um there was there was something about that that really launched me into the church fathers and wanting to understand more of an eastern orthodox way of expressing things and just a few months after that too by complete happenstance he and i happened to be giving papers at the same evangelical philosophical society so I attended his paper and we hung out that afternoon and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, um, we talked a little bit and that's when my interest sort of started. I just started reading a little bit more and, and that sort of thing, I think at his influence, um, in our, our discussions. And, um, it, it took a, a little while longer to, to sort of go from there. I mean, my wife and I found a, a great church finally. I, I'm prior to this, I for a while was considering becoming like a, a reformed scholastic. So, and by that, I mean like somebody who's reformed in theology, but they're, um, they rely on and they have a lot of respect for Thomas Aquinas. I, so I read a I lot a of like, my friend uh, Trip Parker, who has been on my channel before, who lives in Seattle, um, is such a person. He he's sort of uh, oh really yeah he's sort of Calvinist uh, Baptist, but loves Aquinas. So uh, those sorts of people are interesting. Um, he, he's a yeah. really interesting guy. Maybe you should connect up with him yeah. sometime. I bet you could get along. Yeah, I mean, if, if you're out there, definitely message me or something. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, um, sort of uh, diving into like um, uh, a lot of Ed Fazer's work and, and that sort of stuff, my views started to shift to where when I was at least trying to attend these different types of churches, um, I just never really felt right. Um, 
at some of the reformed churches that I went to. And I think part of that was, um, it was just a totally different way of doing things than we were used to before. So like my wife wasn't comfortable with it for that reason. So it was really hard to just be like, yeah, let's start going here. If we don't feel like we're connecting on a spiritual level with the services or anything like that. Because it was too kind of buttoned up or, or what, why do you think that it didn't connect with you uh, very well? I think, um, I mean, for me, I was really open to, to different expressions and just like learning how different churches do things. Mm-hmm. But in particular, like in these churches, you don't like raise your hands when you're, you know, doing worship services and stuff like that. And that way of sort of expressing yourself when that wasn't ever something you ever had an issue with before, and it doesn't look like anybody's doing that and you don't know like if that's an okay thing to do. And you're just not even familiar with any of these songs, like in, in reformed churches coming out of like Pentecostalism, you have to understand like you're drawing on uh, these really exciting upbeat like songs and oftentimes, you know, contemporary Christian music and you don't get a whole lot of that in some of the churches that we do. And we, we finally sort of settled on one. And I think one major shift that happened to me was, um, and maybe he'd, he'd be pleased to hear this, although I'm not sure he'd ever run into this video, but I read a book by James Arcadi, who is now at Trinity Evangelical divinity school um he was somebody i i met at the woods yeah oh yeah Mm -hmm. um i i met him and the other guys involved at uh the analytic theology project at fuller because i went to the los angeles theology uh conference a couple of times and i i i really connected with a couple of those guys read james arcati's book and I realized that there was a have the real presence in the Eucharist without transubstantiation. And I began to feel myself finding the real presence of Christ in communion or in the Eucharist to be true. And the ways that it was practiced in the Reformed churches, and I mean, although to their credit, in the church that we started going to, like, they started doing it every week, but it was kind of like, um, I just felt that my, my desire to, um, to partake of, of, of the Eucharist and that sort of thing wasn't being met in any of those churches for that reason. I mean, reformed churches, uh, are typically going to take like a spiritual presence type view. So they're not going to hold that, that the elements or the, the bread and, and the wine are really the grape juice. Um, our Christ's body and, and blood. <laughs> so I I felt my view there there shift and um a lot of that had to do with James Arcadi's book and also, you know, reading some of Thomas Aquinas, although James um, I never really Arcadi? Yeah, yeah, it's A R C A D I and he has this book. It's it's an analytic theology book. I mean, he's talking about philosophy of language and different models of the incarnation and that sort of thing. And mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw, I, I had a conversation with a Catholic okay. theologian, um, Brett Sockold, who also 
has a view of real presence that or, or an understanding of transubstantiation that is not physical, I guess, or chemical or literal. Literal is a complicated word, but um, yeah. And that he thinks that the original view of Thomas Aquinas is often misunderstood and that oh interesting and that by when thomas aquinas meant transubstantiation he didn't mean that it was something that happened in physicality i guess but was something i don't th this this words the words get fudgy but he would say that that um calvin was actually pretty darn close to understanding Aquinas correctly, even though he didn't think that he was understanding Aquinas. So the, the real presence in something oh, like wow. that is, is stuff that I've been thinking about. I'll look into this James Arcati guy. I found uh, some of his books. Um, but but that, yeah. I, like, it's weird. I totally relate to you that I wish that my evangelical church a didn't believe in the trinity but b um uh took uh the real presence more seriously and did communion more often and yeah. had a little bit more i don't know theological oomph behind that um yeah and that there are ways of thinking of it being real which isn't the sort of thing that it means that it turns into blood literally or something like that yeah i mean arcadi's view i mean he he goes into a lot of this but his basic argument is that you can have the real presence such that you can, you can point at this bread, you know, and, and this wine, and you can truly say, this is Christ's body and this is Christ's blood. And the way that you do that is by modeling it on the incarnation. So, um, and, and basically, ends up arguing is that the elements, the, the brill, he becomes rightly related to them in such a way that he's using that, using them, that they become his body and blood in a way that it's true to say those are his body and blood. So um, I found that really interesting and, and found my view shift there a little bit. And I was just like, I see a lot of value in the real presence and that sort of thing. And um, we we were going to this church that we had sort of settled on for a while and I, I i would still go back there and and love to um you know fellowship with a lot of those guys i joined a men's group and and it was the the first connection that i had had in a long time uh being out of oneness and it was very important to me you know making those connections and a lot of the things that they were doing that I, I am not necessarily objecting with, but I found after a while wasn't really sitting well with me. And part of that was that, uh, I mean, this is not really an, I don't know if this is really an, an argument for all, but I just found contemporary music and that sort of uh, thing and, and way of doing things in, in evangelical type Christianity to be very unsatisfactory to me. Um, and part of that is because um, I'm not, I don't connect emotionally very well with a lot of things unless there's also some, 
some really serious like theology going on and I would just find myself if there were like certain songs or something being sung that I really didn't like or I thought were theologically objectionable like it just wasn't overall enjoyable and um really I just thought I don't I don't have much to lose. I'm, I'm thinking and rethinking a lot of things. And, you know, I talked to Bo Branson about things and I've been thinking about all kinds of things in Eastern Orthodoxy. And I just thought, why would I not at least go and see? Why would I, you know, experience it one time or two times and sort of get a general idea of how they practice and how they do things and, and see how that works. And for the most part, I think, uh, I mean, I've been, I mean, they call you an inquirer. Like if, if you're somebody who's showing up, like checking things out for a while, uh, I've been an inquirer since last fall in Orthodox parish near here. Um, mostly my daughter and I, um, if a lot of, if some of the people out there don't know this in Eastern Orthodoxy, at least in, in many of the parishes, like there's no pews and you don't really like sit down a whole lot and like kids are there with you and they're doing the liturgy with you and all of this sort of thing. So it makes it really difficult for my two-year-old to, to be there, you know, bring my two and my wife. It, it's really hard for like both of us to really think about what's going on and, and that sort of thing. So it's largely been my daughter and I, I going, um, as I've been inquiring and that sort of thing. Um, so I, I do have to be forthright too, that a lot of this is not, uh, it, it's not all rational. I think that there are some emotional and pragmatic reasons for considering other views and potentially feeling yourself pulled towards them. And one of the important things that happened to me was, uh, I mean, we were in these different churches and we settled in this one for a while. And, and my, my daughter and both of my kids like their little Sunday school classes and stuff. And, um, you know, she would play with the kids and, and that sort of thing. And the first time I went to an Orthodox parish and we did the liturgy and we, we did all of these things, my daughter made a friend that she remembered her by name and that had not happened since we had left our oneness church and as a father and uh as somebody trying to guide my kids you know i thought that that was really important for all of this sort of confusion you know that i have sort of inflicted and having to talk through why are we not going back to our old church and stuff like that. There was something about that that I thought was very important and that I have tried not to read too much into. But I did think that was at least one reason or maybe one sign that I should continue to see what's happening here and see how, you know, my daughter likes this and how how does Eastern Orthodoxy, you know, affect the children and that sort of thing. So there were a lot of positive aspects I, start, I started to see in it too, and not just sort of like the view about the Trinity and stuff like that. Um, I mean, just reading things that I write on the Trinity's forum or 
on on my website or whatever there's a lot of these considerations as a father and as a husband that that I take into consideration too but how do you blog about that stuff right yeah <laughs> how yeah. how would i uh maybe convince somebody to check out an orthodox parish because it's it's good for your kids like it just it doesn't land the same so um mm -hmm. i did want to bring that up too just just to be forthright that um kind of about my my experience as an inquirer yeah well no i i appreciate that and honestly like i feel like the two horns of my existential dilemma are this christology question and what to do for my family right and yeah and, and as a father that that's absolutely a legitimate concern so i don't fault you for that at all or view that as any sort of weakness or something like that as if you know rationality were the only reason why we decided to do things so so that that honestly makes perfect sense to me so i guess why uh, tell me a little bit more about that why do you feel like orthodoxy is working well for your daughter and working well for your family yeah. and and for your, the future that you imagine Um, I mean, there, there's a lot to consider and I won't, uh, you know, say I've gone through, you know, the arguments pro and con about every conceivable New Testament, Old Testament verse and that sort of thing. Um, at this point, I do feel a proclivity towards becoming Eastern Orthodox for a number of reasons. Um, I mean, theological reasons, and not just having to do with, I think, um, you know, taking a view like Bill Branson's on the Trinity or that sort of thing being traditional and able to solve some of, you know, the objections that are typically raised against the Trinity. I just found that as I, I started to think through and take more seriously why people are doing what they're doing and why. Um, I have found a number of things that they're doing to not be as objectionable as they would look firsthand. And I mean, I, I'm going to continue to, to study, throw ideas out there. I mean, I'm, I'm sure everybody's seen some of my, my bad ideas on the Trinity's forum. Uh, uh, and just sort of um, come to grips with what scripture is saying and um, come to grips with, I mean, a, a big thing that I'm sort of trying to think about at the same time is like how salvation works. So in considering all of, all of those factors, practical and theological, when it comes to the Trinity or the nation um, or the Eucharist or um, the church fathers and making sense of what happens in the centuries immediately following the death of the apostles. For me right now, I'm willing to say that there are good reasons, I think, for my becoming Orthodox, but it's going to take some time for, um, you know, to figure some other things out. I mean, there's a process even for being received into the church. Um, also talking through a lot of these things with my wife, 
and, you know, seeing how it continues to play out with our kids and that sort of thing too. So I guess that's where I'd summarize and maybe say, I, I don't really know, but I, I could say that I, I find a lot about Eastern Orthodoxy compelling um, for a number of reasons. Sure. So you said you felt that there was a little bit of a uh, culture shock going from oneness to going to sort of a, um, a reformed Baptist sort of church. But the gap between those two things is small compared to the gap between a oneness service and an Eastern Orthodox service. So, uh, yeah. so I, so, so what's it like doing that? Is it almost like so different that it's a little bit easier to try and readjust to or, or why, why doesn't, isn't that causing some of the same problems? Cause I don't think people raise their hands and run up and down the aisles in Eastern Orthodox churches either. <laughs> no they don't but i i will say i mean a lot of the things that they do are still really embodied uh you know making the sign of the cross and um i mean venerating the icons and and stuff like that um i mean maybe this sounds really weird and people who are of oneness or whatever might get upset about this but in oneness pentecostalism maybe a lot of people don't know they call themselves capital A apostolic Pentecostals because they, you know, say that their view goes back to the apostles. This was the apostles view. This is what they practiced. This is what they did. And I think because of that background and really wanting to know what Christianity going back to the apostles is like, I think that has sort of made me open to looking at and seeing and exploring what other people say who also say our practices go back to the apostles. Um, and in part, I mean, just as one example that we've, we've sort of brought up, I mean, pretty much the predominant view in oneness Pentecostalism growing up into my experience is basically a memorialist view of communion or the Eucharist. But when you read the church fathers, I don't know when you begin to see that view for the first time, except maybe in uh, Zwingli, you know, in yeah. the Reformation. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it made me really worried learning things like that, that my oneness faith really did go back to the apostles. And at least when you've got something like the divine liturgy in Eastern Orthodoxy that is all about Christ coming in your presence in, in the Eucharist and it being just Christians following the first century. There's something about that with, with my background and that sort of thing that makes me more curious and, and open to seeing what they have to say about other things. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if that really fully, fully answers it or, or helps to understand it, but my background of saying I'm an apostolic Pentecostal and just wondering after a while how that term lands, seeing something that looks more like what I think the apostles would recognize. Um, it is important to me and I think makes me open to seeing and hearing out views like the Eastern Orthodox view and various things. 
Mm -hmm. No, that, that makes perfect sense to me. And among other people that I know who were evangelical turned Eastern Orthodox, that theme that there are some, that kind of lingering presupposition of we do need to get back to some sort of continuity that really hooks up with Jesus and the first church lingers. Yeah. And it just flips in how it, and in, in the implication, I guess. So, so I think, yeah. I think that there's something that, that makes sense. And I think you're perceptive in, in putting your finger on it that way. Um, yeah. So uh, thanks for saying that. Uh, to give you an awkward question, uh, Mary, how, how are you feeling about Mary? I know that one, that sticking point sometimes seems to bother people longer than the other ones. <laughs> yeah. So here's the thing. If you're um, maybe your average Western evangelical or that sort of thing, when I have talked to people about this sort of stuff and, and listened to you know, testimonies of people becoming Eastern Orthodox. Um, it's always icons and Mary. Like, <laughs> that's what it comes down to for a lot of people. Um, I mean, still working through and thinking about a, a lot of things about Mary. But if you think and if you start, if you look at their icon, um, I, I, I confess, and maybe this is bad, but I don't know the name of it, but basically the main icon that you'll find anywhere is an icon of Mary holding the baby Jesus. And if you, if you think about this sort of, what Mary does is point us to Christ, always. Um, I mean, for one thing, I think that what's going on in the beginning chapters of Luke, Eastern Orthodox, um, Christians really want to take seriously that she is going to be a blessed woman. And if you think about this too, if, I mean, if you put yourself in their shoes, if you believe that Christ was, was both divine and human, he was God and man. And then as man, he had this connection with his mother, it makes a lot of sense to me that she would have an important place, even in the kingdom of God and in her place in, in the life to come. And there can be, I mean, I'll admit, I mean, I've, I've got a couple of, of prayer books and that sort of thing where there's some pretty exalted language that's used of Mary that you will run into right away. Um, there's a prayer, and I don't remember how they all go, but there's one that calls, uh, you know, her the Blessed Theotokos, the 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 Mother of God, the God Bearer, um, Blessed Savior, save us. So she's called a Savior. Um, I think this where they'll normally respond to is um, a a text in James, where I mean, just about. I mean, you and I who help other people on their journeys might be considered saviors. Um, she's also called the queen at times. So, I mean, those are definitely, right? Yeah. Um, well, queen of the universe. Look, I'm that I'm actually not, might be a Catholic title. I'm, I'm, I might be forgetting that. I, I do know they say queen. I'd have to go look. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, they'll call her queen, they'll call her savior and this sort of thing, um, even in direct um, prayers to her. So just a couple of things to unravel there is most of where Mary comes in is prayers to her. And I mean, in the Eastern Orthodox view, the church isn't just like this physical assembly, like just th these fleshly people, like the, the, the church also includes the angels and what they're doing and doing their, I mean, their, their liturgy in part is like modeled on things that you see in revelation and like what's going on in Daniel and um, you know, Isaiah six and stuff like this. So they consider like angels part of the church and, and those who have departed. But it's really important to keep in mind, even when there are certain things that are said of, of Mary that for somebody from a Western background would make them really uncomfortable is that all of these titles and, and what is said of her, um, they imply and they automatically include her son. Mm -hmm. So a way, um, even if you, and I'm sort of going off the cuff, so if this is like unorthodox for an orthodox person or, or whatever, like as I've sort of thought through even the title queen, I mean, when there's a queen, there's presumably a king, unless you've got, some sort of setup where there's, you know, only the, the queen is, is the, the monarch or, I mean, would you say matriarch? I don't know. Um, but even that implies that there's a king and that king we know is her son. Mm -hmm. So what is said and what is uh, done with regard to Mary and Eastern Orthodoxy points to Christ um, and points to the fact that she is a blessed woman who uh, gave, they, they say they get, who gave birth to God, the word. Mm -hmm. So I, I won't say that uh, coming into it initially, it's not like uncomfortable. <laughs> um, it definitely is uncomfortable. Um, but I think if you use those as occasions to, to really think about what they're saying and why you might find that it's less objectionable than sort of your initial reaction might be. Yeah. Well, um, and I mean, I think... you can definitely object to the points that I've made. It's just that that's the way, at least at bottom, they're thinking about it, that what is being said and, you know, everything about Mary that has something to do with her son um, with whom she has a special relationship. So why, why wouldn't we ask the mother of God to pray for us and she can go directly to her son, presumably, you know, uh, keeping this relationship because he's, truly human, you know, in the Eastern Orthodox view, um, why wouldn't you be able to petition her to, to do these sorts of things, I suppose? So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good question. Um, not one that I've worked through fully, to be sure. Sure. And, and honestly, there, I feel like th this is something that I say that never wins me any friends, but I think that biblical Unitarians <laughs> should be able to understand the Mary stuff better than most, because I think biblical yeah. Unitarians basically think of Jesus the same way that Catholics and Orthodox think of Mary. You know, obviously there's yeah, some, I some think gender that's a good point. differences and stuff like that, but it's actually a very yeah. similar sort of thing. Sure. And so, so I, I kind of, I kind of get it right? It's a human being who's been lifted up into heaven and has a new special role over the universe and uh, has special access to God. It's like, 
I get it. <laughs> I, I, I see your point. Um, whether or not I think that that's true of Mary is a different subject. But but I I sort yeah. of I sort of understand it. Maybe I've said that to you before that I think that biblical Unitarians basically have a Christology that's parallel to the Mariology of of sort of Orthodox churches. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's a good point. I I don't think like it. I don't know if that means as a biblical Unitarian, like you should just automatically, you know, accept that it's similar. Um, I mean, cause Mary's not, you know, upholding the universe by the word of her power and, right. <laughs> you know, and, things like and that. She, so. isn't, she isn't the one to whom the kingdom is given. Right? Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. There's okay. There's some technicalities and, and there's some, I think a lot of it also has to do with sort of gender imagery and, and symbolism and, and stuff like that. So obviously that's different too, but, but, but yeah, there's sure. sort of a, a fundamental uh, kind of spiritual similarity, I think, and in, in how it's conceived of. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I think that's a good point. I, I guess, uh, is there anything, I think we're probably coming to a, something close to a logical stopping point for now. Uh, we've, this is, I, I feel like this is probably round one for us. I think we've got plenty to talk about. Um, but, but is there anything else yeah. that, that you want to share, uh, or anything else that you haven't gotten to talk about that, that, that you want to talk about? Um, I don't think so. I think I've, I've tried to be pretty tentative about some of the things that I've said. So I, I don't know if there's anything I need to go back and correct at this point, but, uh, yeah, um, I mean, like I said, there's uh, a big thing for me is, of course, I want to think about these things rationally. And I mean, it, it was really cool. You had Chris Date on just, I finished the book, like the night was to the interview. So, I mean, I'm I'm thinking through these things and, and considering all of that, but um, at a at a real fundamental level, as much as I try to think about things as much as what I'm used to, you know, doing analytic theology and, and philosophy and, and that sort of thing, um, there at some point comes practical questions for all of us and really pragmatic considerations. Um, and some of those that we've, we've sort of touched on. And I, I, hope that a conversation like this, when people are considering different views, if you're listening to my story and like your oneness or you remain oneness or you think I got something wrong, um, we should at least be open to realizing that the way that we think about these issues and ultimately where we land isn't solely a rational thing. And that's a good thing because that's not all we are as, as human beings. We have families and we have responsibilities to one another as, as human beings. And those are all factors that are very difficult to face and to parse. In a time like this, when we're in the middle of quarantine and that sort of thing, when maybe many of us right now, you know, talking or listening to this might come out of this with serious you know, mental health issues and that sort of thing. I also want to say that subjects like this can be very difficult. 
and it is absolutely appropriate. And I don't think you're doing God a disservice or making him displeased by taking a break from reading theology. Like maybe you need to take a break and you just need to read the Psalms and you need to get off the pages where we're hopefully making friendly arguments and stuff like that, because there are real human dimensions to this. And there are real spiritual ones too. So, I mean, maybe in some of our later parts, Sam, I mean, we'll talk about some more, you know, maybe arguments or, um, you know, stuff like that. But I hope that what we've discussed here sort of frames those things well and um, will allow us to just come to these things more forthrightly and hopefully um, or as a, as friends arguments in such a way that hopefully are loving. And I, I will say too, that uh, maybe I haven't always sounded like that as I've written and some of the things that have occurred lately, but um, I have apologized for those sorts of things. And, and I, I, I hope that a conversation like this clears up where I'm coming from and, um, and things like that too. So. Well, good. I think that's very well said. Um, I feel like dialogue is one of the few tools we have uh, for helping uh, sort some of these questions out. And I think that good dialogue is hard to come by and that it, it's built on some amount of interpersonal trust and good faith. And um, so, yeah. so I look forward to, to having more of that with you. And I appreciate your, your honesty and you coming to share your story. Yeah, thanks a lot, Sam. I appreciate this a lot. All right, that sounds good. I think I'll stop the recording right now.